Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? I have decided that we all need to learn something today, you included, and me. Uh, So I invited Ted Hooten to join us. Ted has been a journalist for 40 years, uh, specialises in defence. He's written numerous articles on military history. He's also written books on the Luftwaffe, on Russian air power, on World War I air power. But we've got him here today to talk about a book he wrote that covers the Balkan Wars. So we all know, we all know we have to list this as a cause of World War I, and then I am just as guilty as everyone else in knowing that I know when it happened, but that's it. I know nothing else. So, Ted, welcome. Thank you. This would be really good to learn about this properly. Okay. Okay. So, I suppose, first of all, we need to set the scene, don't we? So, can you yeah. tell us the story behind the phrase, the sick man of Europe? And yeah. why does it make this region so volatile? Well, the sick man of Europe, the, was the sick man uh, was first used by Tsar Nicholas III, uh, in 1853. The term sick man of Europe actually was written in the New York Times in March 1861. And what it meant was that you have the Ottoman Empire slowly but surely declining. And you have, especially in Europe, the rise of young uh, dynamic powers uh, driven by nationalism and with territorial ambitions. And those territorial ambitions were focused upon the Ottoman Empire, if you like. It was rather like um, scavengers uh, um, trying to hunt down um, an old buffalo. And um, the Ottoman Empire, although nominally strong, was in fact um, very, very rickety. But then so was the Austro-Hungarian Empire on its northern borders. Yeah, it's not, it's just, and this is why, isn't it? Because this is where they clash in the Balkans. Yes. And this is why the region is volatile. Indeed it is. Um, and it's these territorial ambitions, they, uh, basically what happens is that the, um, the Greeks, the Bulgarians and the Serbians, uh, together with the Montenegrins, form um, an alliance, an agreement, basically to try and knock bits off the Ottoman Empire um, with the hopes that the great powers, uh, Russia, Austro-Hungary, and to a lesser degree, Great Britain, will um, uh, go along with this. And one reason or another, they get get together and they, uh, they trigger the war. So can you draw the battle lines for us? And who are the major players in this story? It's not so much 
personalities. The personalities tend to be forgotten, but a curious thing is that monarchs play an interesting part in this. Um, Ferdinand I, the emperor of Bulgaria, and he is the man who is manipulating the Bulgarian scene. On the his his generals are people like Vasily Kutinichov, Nikolai Ivanov, and especially Radko Dimitrov. Um, on the Serbian side, you have uh, Radomir Putkin, sorry, Putnik. On the Greek side, Prince Constantine. On the um, Montenegrin side, Crown Prince Danilo. And the Turkish uh, leader with the greatest influence was Nashi Nazim Pasha. These are the people who are the, the prime players, but there are numerous others. It's, it's, it's one of the most extremely complex um, struggles, um, which it's very, very, it's almost as difficult to describe as, a, as one of the great, as the First World War, the Second World War. Numerous fronts, masses of uh, diplomatic shenanigans, and it's, it, it becomes um, sometimes quite bewildering. It's mad, isn't it? So there, oh, yeah. you've got kind of uh, the Austro-Hungarians trying to maintain their imperial integrity and the yes. Ottomans, and then all of these nationalist entities as well mixed in, yeah. uh, trying and you have the to Russians, break away. Yeah, and you have the Russians determined to uh, use the, especially the Bulgarians, as a sort of a proxy um, means of gaining access to the um, to the Mediterranean. I think so. With, there's a lot of names in there that you've just read out yeah. that are in World War One as well. It's quite extraordinary then how they were possibly the only people that took part in World War One that had such a recent battle. Oh, oh, but there's one other. There's one other which I haven't mentioned, and that is uh, Kemal Ataturk, mm -hmm. who actually fought in Gallipoli between 1912 and 1913. And that is, of course, the founder of the Republic the of Turkey. founder of modern Turkey. And, incidentally, the man who, who uh, destroyed uh, the Greek... Um, who, uh, who destroyed the Greek presence, uh, post-war Greek presence, in Asia Minor. And that presence was uh, deployed by, who, by King Constantine, who had been Crown Prince of Constantine in the Balkan Wars. He loses. His, he's one of the ones to lose his throne as well, isn't he? In he was. I think War. he was the one who died through a monkey bite. No, that was his son. I think it's Alexander. Son, my it's my favourite entry in George the Fifth's diary ever. It just <laughs> says King Alexander died. He was bit by a monkey. That's it. And you're like, what? Where did that come from? <laughs> it's just in the middle of all the usual drudgery around Buckingham Palace. I love it. <laughs> so it's been a while since there's been armed conflict in Europe, isn't it? Mm, so what yeah. kind of technological advancements do we see in the Balkans Wars? And how do they act as a trial run of sorts for World War I? Well, the first thing is that the Balkan Wars, not the Russo-Japanese War, which most people focus on, the Balkan Wars are the watershed between 19th and 20th century warfare. You actually have in the Balkans the last use of gunpowder in um, small arms and to a lesser degree cannon. You also have the use of um, um, the new uh, quick fire, very accurate uh, artillery with um, recuperator mechanisms, which means they use nitrocellulose propellants and explosives. They're more accurate. 
have longer ranges and more importantly you fire them they're still in place you don't have to push them back into place to aim them in addition you have the development of automatic weapons and in addition to that you have the greater use of heavy artillery that was the one thing that um, influenced the the all the powers um, in the in the second at the end of it they all realized suddenly in the case of the French that you needed heavy artillery as well as field guns on the battlefield especially if you're using um, them against trenches entrenched defenders so that is why it is extremely um, important it is if you like artillery becomes the dominating factor on the battlefield for the first time which is what happened of course in the first world war first world war was an artilleryman's war from day one to day zero so in the first world war we're about yeah. to see complete confusion because people don't know how to implement advancements and advancements sorry in warfare do we see that here too in a way yes you do you see the the problem is that between about 1870 and 1914 you get a colossal um developments in technology of all sorts and all shapes and sizes especially military and you have the development from um, gunpowder based uh, warfare to nitrocellulose based warfare which means um, more accurate um, longer ranged weapons also smokeless and the problem was that the armies of the time had great difficulty adjusting to this you still have um, troops going into battle in 1914, in the Balkan Wars and in 1914, going into battle almost shoulder to shoulder behind the banners, just as they had done in Napoleonic times. And it was difficult for the armies to grasp the impact of the technology upon the battlefield. It, it took them, um, really, it wasn't until about 1916, 1917 that the generals began to understand this. But you do find, for example, in the German counterattack at Cambrai in November 1917, one of the reasons that it wasn't as successful as you might think was because Israel, the, Israeli, the German troops were going into battle almost shoulder to shoulder. Heaven only knows what idiot decided that would happen but there we go they were cut to pieces sometimes by incidentally by american railroad troops but they were cut to pieces by the defenders and that was why they didn't regain all the all the territory which the, uh, was won by the tanks so you do have this tremendous confusion and you the need to begin to adjust to the new technology to the new the new forms of warfare so in terms of the actual fighting in the Balkan yes. Wars, tell us, how does it break out? Um, it breaks out because they, they, the uh, various nations are deciding to push and push and push until finally they, uh, the, the Ottomans uh, you know, uh, find themselves facing war. It's as simple as that. And you have basically two theatres, uh, the Eastern Theatre, which is roughly around Thrace, and the Western theatre, which is basically Macedonia, but is also uh, modern, uh, roughly modern Albania. So you have these, and you have various armies fighting almost private wars within them. 
So let's start with the Eastern Theatre. You yeah. call this the Hollow Triumph. Yeah. It's the Hollow Triumph because it was largely, uh, especially in Eastern, the Eastern part, it was a triumph of Bulgarian arms. They basically drove the Ottoman Empire almost to the gates of Constantinople. It was a you know, tremendous success. And it was in the Second Balkan Wars, it was a total failure. They, everything that they had won, they, almost everything they'd won, they'd lost. Hence, the, it was a hollow triumph. The, the, they also tried to go for Macedonia, especially for Salonika. They got a presence into Salonika, but they, that was pushed out in the Second Balkan War. And basically, everything the, the Bulgarians had hoped to have a greater Bulgaria, about twice the size of modern Bulgaria. And at, at one point, they achieved this, but both diplomatically and militarily, they, they lost out because the British and uh, the Germans were not happy about anything which strengthened Russian power, even indirectly. The Bulgarians were closely associated with the Russians. And this was one of the problems. The Greeks, um, the Serbians, they all got territory and um, in Macedonia. And um, in the, on, the other, on, the other, uh, on the other side, in the Western theatre, um, there were... There were the Montenegrins, the Serbians, the Greeks, they all got territory. The Bulgarians, who'd really done most of the fighting, who'd been the spearhead of the Allied forces against the Ottoman Empire, <laughs> had, you know, had done it for absolutely nothing. They'd suffered terrible casualties in the process. Hence, it was a very hollow triumph. What about the Western Front? So you have called this the ebb and flow of ambition in the book. Oh, yes. Well, again, you have here the Serbs, Greeks, Montenegrins, Bulgarians. They're all they've all got territorial ambitions in this area. As I said, the uh, Bulgarians wanted uh, parts of Macedonia. They especially wanted Salonika, which was the great port for the region. The Serbs wanted what is basically what is modern southern Yugos, what was modern uh, southern Serbia. Which, uh, in, my, in my day, my young day, it was modern southern Yugoslavia. The Montenegrins wanted chunks of modern Albania. There was Albanians as well. Um, and the Serbs wanted territory. The Greeks wanted territory in, um, on, the, on, the, um, uh, on the western coast. Everybody wanted territory. And they, they got some of it. But in the Treaty of London in um, 1930, which was signed in 1930, they had to they often had to concede, often because of great power pressure and hence the ebb and flow. They often would get ground and then they'd be forced to concede parts of it because of great power pressure. Can you tell us more um, as well about naval warfare in the Balkan Wars? Naval warfare was basically uh, between the Greeks and the Turks, and it was the last of the pre-Dreadnought Wars. The Greeks were far more, uh, far more aggressive, and although the Turkish navy was stronger in terms of ships, the Greeks kept it off balance all the time. One, two interesting factors also involved, and that is that the first use of a submarine in European naval warfare, it didn't. It didn't. It fired a torpedo at a battleship, missed, dropped its ballast, and promptly rose to the surface and was out of action. 
There was also an air attack. One other interesting thing, not directly attached, not directly part of the Balkan War, but part of a separate war against between Italy and the Ottoman Empire was that the Italian Navy attempted to force the their way into the Bosphorus through the Straits of the, the past the Dardanelles. In other words, you have something that happened only three years later. This was 1912, 1915. The Allies are trying exactly the same thing. Oh, and also both both times, both efforts failed. Most people aren't aware of this Italian effort. In fact, um, I attended a lecture in a ship, the Marco Polo, which is going to be scrapped. And um, it was about the Dardanelles. And the, uh, the lecturer hadn't been aware of this Italian naval effort. To my shame, I'm not either. And hardly anybody does. When the Italians um, took Libya, this was part of the, the military operations. Exactly why they went into the Bosphorus. To be honest, I don't know, because it's not part of something I've really studied. I think, um, isn't the Italians over Libya is the first time someone drops a bomb out of an aeroplane as well? It's probably, yes, it's probably the same time. Although there were similar um, uh, efforts during the Balkan Wars. And during the Balkan Wars, you also have um, what we now call electronic warfare. You have um, communications intelligence, which is listening into enemy radio messages. You also have what we call um, electronic countermeasures, ECM, which was trained to jam such radio messages. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You've mentioned diplomacy playing a huge yeah. part in the Balkan Wars. Why is that? Well, the whole, the whole period between 1880 and 1914, Europe is on, 
is simmering away. You have the great um, groups of alliances, each one of them determined, uh, feeling itself threatened. And now you have a total change in the balance of power in, in the Balkans, an, uh, an area which is notorious for its volatility. So you have um, the Greeks seizing the, most of the islands off the, off the um, Turkish Anatolian coast. You have um, the, uh, the Greeks basically doubling the size of their country. You have the Serbians double, uh, growing in power. Uh, you have the uh, Bulgarians declining, well, growing in power. All of this threatened the whole of the European balance of power and the European uh, superpowers were extremely concerned about it. You see, up to about that period, what had kept them all in check was the the developments in uh, military technology. You have changes between almost every decade, between 1880 and certainly uh, 1890. Um, one one way you can look at this is I mentioned recuperators. These are things that like tubes on the bottom or or below a gun barrel. And in 1896, the German army introduced its FK 96 field gun, which did not have recuperators. They were very really proud. These were the new Krupp guns, accurate, the new nitrocellulose explosives, propellants, fantastic. And the French introduced the model um, 1897, which had recuperators and basically was more accurate, faster firing than the, than the German guns. So that meant that the Germans had to totally uh, modernize the, the new field guns and things like that. You got the uncertainty over whether uh, military technology, you know, the other side might have some superior military technology um, made thing that made the generals and the admirals reluctant to uh, rattle their sabres too loudly. There was sabre rattling, yes, but nobody wanted to get um, actually start sw uh, swinging at each other until around 19, by the first decade of the 20th century, you have the situation where the technology has stabilised um, the new, the armies are re-equipping with that technology, artillery with recuperators, machine guns, magazine rifles, this sort of thing. You've got the aeroplane, the airship, and they, the, the military side is more confident. So that when the, the in the past, if the uh, diplomats had, had suggested uh, real military action, the generals had held them back. Now they no longer held them back. This is especially true of Austria-Hungary where you get the, the, the generals, and especially as a result of this, um, of the diplomatic actions in, um, in the Balkan Wars, both after the two Balkan Wars, you have a situation where the threat is so great, uh, perceived as so great by the Austrian armed forces, the Austrian army, that they are gung-ho for attacking Serbia on any pretext, which of course triggers World War I. But it's this holding, this uncertainty, which is holds, if you like, holds back the, the generals, the diplomats from war. That's why it's so important, why each side was willing to, to, to carry out diplomatic, willing to resolve, uh, willing to resort more to diplomatic rather than military action. That's why this is uh, such important, so important diplomatically. 
it's the last time because everybody thought in June in the summer of, of 1914 it would be another crisis like they'd had dozens before only it mm-hmm. didn't because it's the of... quote from Gray, isn't there, about the if there was a European war, it would come out of some damn business in the Balkans. So people Precisely. recognised it, but it oh, was yes. just the one, it was the time they didn't breach the problem diplomatically, isn't Precisely. it? Precisely. They couldn't find they couldn't find a solution because basically Austria and Austria was willing to use military uh, means. Germany was willing to back her up. Russia was willing to use military means to support the Serbs and the French were linked into the Russians. So it was, um, it, it was like sort of turning the, the um, turning a fuse and then firing the gun. Bang. <laughs> Bang indeed. So there are, let's just get the distinction right because there are two yeah. Balkan wars with yeah. plural because yeah. it stops and then it starts again. Can you explain that to people? Yes, basically, the uh, the Treaty of uh, of London were people, not everybody was happy, and especially the Bulgarians. Um, the Serbs and the Greeks, they weren't happy either. And basically, they decided to gang up against the Bulgarians and attack them um, in order to secure their, their position, especially in Macedonia. And the the Bulgarians were weakened, so, but they decided to stage an offensive, which was initially successful, but then held back. Uh, the Greeks and the Serbians then began pushing into uh, Bulgaria. And um, just to join in the fun, the Romanians decided they had uh, territorial ambitions in, in what was then Greater Bulgaria. So they joined the the, uh, the the conflict and basically Bulgaria was being pushed in uh, was I uh, was like um, a, a fist sticking out and somebody swinging an axe on it and in the meantime the uh, as they began to fall back as their defeat became obvious the Turks um, decided right this is the time to get our get our own back and they regained uh, what what was called at the time Adrianople which is um uh, now called, I think, Erdeni. I think that's the modern name for it, but it was called at that time uh, Adrianople. And they basically regained a chunk of their European empire. And it left the Bulgarians, they had a little, they gained a little bit of territory, but all the territory they'd won was lost. And they were pretty hacked off. In fact, after the uh, Treaty of Constantinople, they started looking towards. Um, Germany and Turkey as um, as as new allies. They weren't interested in the Russians at all. I'm going to be really mean now because I didn't give you this question in advance, but I'd really oh. like to know. So Bulgaria don't declare war in 1914. It takes till the end of 1915 for them to come yeah. into the conflict. So why is that if they're so hacked off with what happens in the Balkan War? Because they, A, they, they didn't want to um, uh, play hopscotch in the minefield. Mm. because they they, they couldn't be certain what the heck was happening. And also they'd taken terrible losses uh, in both men and material, and they needed time to rebuild it. And only when they were in a position to... um, They were strong enough to start the war. Also, you have the situation where the Germans uh, and Austrians are able to keep the Romanians 
off their backs and the Serbians themselves had been suffered a terrible defeat, basically be, almost being driven out of Serbia into Albania. So this was the time, you know, we're on the winning side, guys. Let's let's join in the battle. Yeah, it's not worth the effort for them beforehand, is it? No, not at all. Not at all. And then you have a situation where um, the British, the Allies decide to come to the aid of the Greeks. Uh, though the Greek king was happy to, he was pro-German, mm. but and he was basically disp- uh, deposed. Venezuela. Uh, Venezuelos? Sorry. That's um, right, yeah, it is Venezuelos. Venezuelos. Yep. He becomes uh, uh, the Prime Minister, basically uh, sanctifies the uh, the presence of the French and the Germans, sorry, the French and the British, or yep. French and, the Germans. and um, this leads to two years of, of almost... Uh, totally static warfare a total waste of time in fact the 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 garrison in, were referred to as this gardeners of Salonica. but in 19 uh, september 1918 the allies then made this great sweep which uh, allows the serbs to regain the whole of their territory regain some more bulgarian territory and um, basically bulgaria is once again um, almost emasculated and Ferdinand is another one that loses his throne, isn't he? Oh no, Ferdinand keeps his throne. Does he keep his throne? I thought his, he was. And his son, his son, and um, I think his yes, his son, he kept his throne till 1943. Ah, oh, I did not know that. I think yeah. for me, he will always be immortalised as the one that had his bottom spanked by Kaiser Wilhelm in public. It's good to know we have we can have fun in royal circles. This is true. I have to ask you, what do you think is the most important development or most important um, sort of trial of something in battle in the Balkan Wars that we then see in the First World War? I think it's the, the siege of Katakala, the, um, the, the defences, because there you have a situation where the very weak forces fall back onto defences, which are hastily rebuilt. And they hold back the whole of the Bulgarian army and basically, as I said, kept the Bulgarians out of Constantinople. There were quite a few battles um, which showed the way that the things were going. But that particular, the, that particular scene, the Katalka lines, it was, it was the, that was a decisive moment because it demonstrated the power of the defence no matter what. Mm. And it's also uh, saved um, Constanti- Constantinople. Is there any lesson you think should have been learnt from the Balkan Wars that isn't? No, because there was quite simply, there was no real time mm. to learn the lessons. Um, after the Russo-Japanese War, you've got um, certainly the Germans, certainly the British, and I presume the French and the Russians, um, all had official histories out. They, gave, they, had, they had time to examine, to look at it, and to make adjustments in their forces. The Balkan Wars uh, happened within, what, within about a year of the Balkan Wars ending, the First World War breaks out. Yeah. There is no time. You, the French begin to place orders for 155mm howitzers and uh, cannon, in other words, heavy artillery, but it's at least two years before they begin to appear and they are really uh, um, hunting around for heavy artillery for their offensives, which are all get uh, chopped to pieces. And I'm translating an account actually by a a French artilleryman with a 155 in Gallipoli and I think Mm. it's ancient. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, in the Gallipoli battles, you um, you have a French officer who loses one arm, and he's the uh, officer who turns up um, on the flank of the Americans during the Argonne offensive. It's one of the, one of these little things. The, the Americans never they mention his one arm, but they never mention where he lost his arm, which was in Gallipoli. <laughs> I want to ask you just lastly before we finish. This has been great as a crash course in the Balkan War. I hope so. Yeah, um, I want to ask everybody who's ever had to write that essay about the causes of the First World War knows yeah. they have to mention the Balkan Wars. But how important are they in the historiography of the twentieth century? I think they are very. They are a key event. They because they create the uncertainty, the the the, the diplomatic uncertainty. They. They shake the whole of the diplomatic chessboard and they create a, a totally new situation which increases the tensions between uh, certainly Russia and Austria-Hungary. The two had come almost to war in 1912-1913 but wiser heads held people back. This time there was nothing to hold them back, especially with the Germans backing the Russians, uh, backing the Austria-Hungary. Austria Austrians. <laughs> it's definitely a significant stepping oh, yes. stone. Without, isn't without it? doubt. You know, you might well, if it hadn't been for the Balkan Wars, there's a chance that the situation would have, that existed, say, in 19, roughly in 1900, would have continued certainly into the 1920s. You, you never know. But that was the, once the whole of the, um, the chessboard had been changed. It made a whole new situation. You also have a situation where the armed forces are now confident that they have the, 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 the other side will not have um, brand new technologies, which will uh, mean that their forces are outdated. They're therefore confident of being able to meet the, uh, the enemy in battle. So you have, it becomes a perfect storm. Diplomatic um, uncertainty, military certainty, and you, you, you're just waiting for somebody to... Um, um, toss a match into the bar barrel of gunpowder, and the um, uh, so a very lucky assassin with a with a Browning pistol manages to do that. It's Sarajevo. Ted, thank you so yes. much for joining us. I okay. learned so much at this. I point. hope so. Um, I didn't really know that much about this. Actually, I knew nothing. I knew zero. And, okay. Uh, now I have a wider knowledge. So thank you so much for joining. That's all right. Thank you for asking me. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.